You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. However you feel about evolution, survival of the fittest, we've got an audio that may show you, um, I don't know. There's just a time where you got to let nature take its course. A bear came across a, a solo kayaker, Mary Maley, who was on a solo kayaking trip from Ketchikan to Petersburg, Alaska. And, uh, you know, was posted outside of uh, the U.S. Forest Service cabin in Berg Bay. And uh, she had just carried her tent, food, and gear into the cabin before she was going to go on a four-mile hike, I guess. So she just removed the food from her kayak and carried it up to the cabin. Well, she heard something outside while she was having her lunch, and she came out to find a bear, right? Um, And the bear started to approach her, and this is the beginning of... I'm pretty sure not the best bear handling technique. Let's listen. No! Get away from the kayak! Stop it, bear! Bear, you're breaking it! You're breaking my kayak! Why are you breaking my kayak? What am I going to do? Stop that, bear! Bear, stop! Stop breaking my kayak, please! Please stop! She is the nicest victim of a bear uh, terroristic act on a kayak I've ever heard. She didn't even swear. That was, okay, it's a bear. It's a bear. It's doing what bears do. By the way, this is after the bear started getting curious about her and followed. uh, She could smell the food she was out there eating. And, uh. Holy cow. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? Gosh darn it. You bear. She's talking to it like it's um like it's her child. Not like a ferocious wild animal that could kill her. And she even and we didn't have the audio for that, but as the bear approached, she said, "I'm going to spray you with pepper spray." She is so nice. I'm sure the bear feels really good about her. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. No. It's not even food, bear. It's plastic. It's it's a carcinogen. You ought not be eating that, bear. It's just plastic. (laughs) She's obviously stressed, but, you know, maybe a really loud noise, you know? If she had a gun, don't know if she did, 
Maybe that's where you use a gun to just shoot a gun and the bear would run away. Or in that case, a bomb. She could just drop a bomb. You're supposed to be asleep. Hey, bear, did you not know it's sleepy time? Why aren't you hibernating? Holy cow. (gasps) Now, this is a perfect example of where if we just let nature be nature, Mary would be dead. Because if you're going to talk to a bear that way, by the way, the bear destroyed the kayak. She's very nice. Please stop breaking my things. Oh, wow. She ended up, the bear left. I think to probably go hibernate because he didn't know. What she doesn't know is there's like no bear deadline to hibernate. You know, when it's just ready, it's just going to go. She's like, I thought. Well, she had to then – she tried to call down. There was a sailboat out there in the, in the bay and she tried to get a hold of the people on the sailboat. But she, they couldn't, she couldn't get a hold of them. So she had to swim in the cold water out to the sailboat. Oh, <laughs> oh it's just so funny. This is why, you know – you know, people laugh about all these hunters and the fishermen and all these outdoorsmen that have guns. But that would have been a good time to have a gun, not to shoot the bear. You don't need to kill the bear. Just fire the gun and scare the bear away. You could just scream. And she notice what she used. Questions. Why are you eating my thing? What if the bear just what said, What am I going to do? Well, what are you going to do, lady? What if the bear just stood up and put his hands on his hips and like, okay, what I want you to do is shut your cake hole. You're making too much noise and you're stressing me out. That's, that's just funny. That's just funny. It's such a contrast. It just seems like she's a city slicker. Please stop. Please, wild animal. I think she's talking to you, Matt. Is she, is she talking to me? Yeah. Am I beating this dead horse? Please stop. Can't you just see like a mountain lion? Rawr, ripping. Please, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin my shirt. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? <laughs> oh, I bet you she's such a lovely woman. She really is. I'm sure she's the, she's the kind of woman. By the way, she's videotaping the whole thing. And you can see the bear walk up to her and she's like, I'm going to spray you with pepper spray like it's a warning. You kids, I'm going to get you. Anyway, she sprays the bear. She's lucky to be alive. She reminds me of you, Ben. Lovely person. That time when the raccoon came in? Yeah. Silly raccoon grabbing on my neck. Sticking your teeth. (laughs) Anyway, great, uh, great lessons for all of us. There's a time 
to be nice. There's a time to like plead. And she used orders. Stop that. She used questions. She said, please and thank you. She would said, gosh, instead of swearing. I totally appreciate that. There's just a point that it wasn't working. He thrashed your kayak. Make a noise. Scare the thing. Just scare it. Throw a rock at it. I didn't want to hurt it. Of course you didn't. You're just lucky to be alive. Hope we've all learned a lesson today. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're, they're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, and... It's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, okay? And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Not interesting. One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? They, like, they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start 
taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs, and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate. But um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dating is dead, exclamation point. Come on. You know, it's not what what it used to be. That's what we keep hearing uh, today that, you know, these kids, they just don't date like they used to. Um, You know, men used to pick up women up, knock at the door. Now it's all Snapchat and Tinder. But is that really what's going on in the dating world? Are they are people not dating anymore? Um, And is it really as awful as it seems or as some people make the dating world seem? So we thought we'd bring in the pro. And uh, who better to teach us about dating and what is dating than um, the author of the book Labor of Love, the invention of dating. It's it's a it's a wonderful piece that reviews the history and maybe and some of the some of the parallels of dating and, and the, you know, the advancement of, of uh, women and women's rights, the advancement also of, of market economies and global marketing and even social media. Maura Weigel's her name. She is a Ph.D. student at Yale University um, and in comparative literature and film and media studies and a wonderful author. Maura, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Honored for and introduction. Well, this is a great. I think I so I'm a relationship coach, and I love uh, I love helping couples that are married stay married, communicate. But what's interesting, Maura, I loved your approach to this because I've I've always struggled um, talking about the dating side because I, I don't want to become cynical to it, right? I don't want to look like a dating. These kids don't date anymore. And so li- listening about your book, reading your book, I've, I started to find that there's, a, there's, there's an interesting history to dating. Teach us. What, dating, it, it's it, – talk about the history. I won't even lead it into what I want yeah, you to say. Yeah, well, talk I about the history. Question, to the question of whether or not dating is dead, I always like to say, you know, the invention of dating is the invention of the death of dating. <laughs> um, adults have – and I count myself among the adults regretfully, so no name-calling here, but they have always – we have always worried that uh, that younger people are not doing it right. Uh, so the history of dating, as you were sort of alluding to in your introduction, uh, is about 100 years old. You know, people, it sounds strange now because we all take it for granted that that's the way we do things. But if you think of most times and places in human history, 
That is not how people have paired off. It's usually been controlled by families or by community leaders like priests or pastors or rabbis. And, uh, and it's really very, very new and very shocking uh, when young people start to do it around, around the turn of the last century in 1900. And my hope for exploring all of it was to bring, you know, some clarity and to sort of dispel some of this huge anxiety that I think you were bringing up. Because yeah. I do think the sense that young people aren't doing it right, nobody ever feels like they're doing it right, and it produces a ton of anxiety for people on the dating market. <laughs> Which is why I guess they seem like they're not uh, doing it, but maybe the anxiety makes it so it's something they do quietly. No, I think, look, I think that what you're getting at is, um, I think what dating is for every generation changes really dramatically sometimes with other changes in the economy. So, you know, one of my favorite details uh, that I learned in my research was that the first women who let men take them out to dinner around 1900, um, these were working women, women going into the city alone without their families, which was a pretty new historical phenomenon then. Uh, those women were often arrested for prostitution for letting a man buy them dinner because oh. that was the only, um, you know, that was the only thing that looked that it looked like to right. the police and to the authorities. Then, even if it wasn't a money for sex transaction, and when it often wasn't, um, you know, but it was money <laughs> yeah. for a meal for your romantic consideration. It was. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, jeez! No, we're just having dinner. That's yeah, horrible. No, I mean, it's really funny. I um. A lot of the, the first chapter of the book is about prostitution or sort of semi-prostitution in this way that, um, that you know, I think people who go out and, you know, again, this, this ritual of the date, if you think about it compared to, like, the Jane Austen-type ritual where a man comes to your house with your parents, this ritual of the date, which traditionally involved a man buying something for a woman, often kind of looks like prostitution. I think we still have some of that anxiety with us, this anxiety about, like, well... What is it for? Who's getting what? Do I owe him something? Like these kind of thinking, which you still see people having, comes yeah. out of that. But in the early police records I read for my research, you constantly see these women being dragged into jail, dragged into the reformatory, saying to the police, no, I didn't take any money. I just took the meal. Um, Interesting. Which is not to say that they had no material considerations. Often they did because women were paid quite poorly and were often quite poor. Um, so often it was that they needed a meal. But uh, but I'm not joking about that. Yeah, they no. really were arrested. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, I guess. So historically with dating then, dating was tied to having money. You you needed money to go out and and have an activity or, you know, you had to have enough money. I, I guess as dating became more and more okay, less of a potential arrest, um, it, yeah. was, it, was, it was probably, I guess, the wealthier class that were doing it. Totally. Well, it has a funny history that way because it starts out as a real working class and like poor immigrant phenomenon, and that sort of from 1900 till about World War One, and then uh, then you get these sort of flappers and fussers, these really kind of upper class college kids imitating it, and it becomes fashionable. So that's I don't know if people know the book The Great Gatsby, yeah. Side of Paradise. That's like that era of of dating, and it's really only a bit closer to World War II that it becomes a sort of middle-class, going-steady Norman Rockwell soda counter kind of thing that I think we probably now have in our minds. And we think of, you know, quote-unquote traditional, we always mean the 50s in America, Yeah, I think. Um, but yeah, so it definitely goes from being 
working class to being sort of upper class first. And it's still, you know, it was always expensive. It's still expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, in time as well as money. I mean, if you think of the amount of time people spend tending to their, okay, Cupid profiles or their, I mean, I guess a Tinder profile takes last time, but Hinge or, you know, many of these apps demand quite a lot of time before you even get to buying and you want to drink or a dinner. That's true. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you've got to get through, you know, 20 text messages eventually to a call from the call to a place to meet. I mean, it, it could take weeks. Totally. Yeah. And it's so, um, you know, it's like many things in this country, I think it's increasingly divided along class lines. It's very different for people with more or less money. But for people, you know, in lower income brackets who are often working multiple jobs, like that's a lot of time. That's not a, a negligible barrier. Uh, so anyway, so it's still, it still costs time and money to date. You, if we don't necessarily think about it that way. Right. One of my favorite things that you talk about, um, because just some of the parallels, are the parallels between dating and working and kind of, yeah. you know, kind of a consumer, like a, a business kind of model. Even the terms mm-hmm. we use around dating and working parallel so closely. Totally. Um, I always, I used to have, I don't have it memorized anymore, but one very long sentence that uses all the market metaphors we use for dating. <laughs> but, you know, it's things like on the market, off the market, damaged goods is not a nice thing to say, but it's a thing people say, um, hard to get, friends with benefits, investing time in a relationship. I mean, all of these are thinking about courtship is just permeated by these economic metaphors. And that was part of what got me interested in writing the book, really. And very early on, I realized it was kind of a history of the economy and especially of women in the workforce, which, again, you know, um, I call it labor of love, partly for that reason. Uh, People only start dating as opposed to having their parents fix them up or their community fix them up once you get women in the workplace with the freedom and the obligation, you might say, uh, to find partners. So. So, yeah, absolutely. From its very beginning, it changes with the economy in all sorts of ways. It has to do with that original invention being about women in the workforce. It has to do with, um, you know, very practical things like, you know, there weren't movie theaters and then there were. That was a thing to go do on a date then. Uh, Or, you know, working hours, which have gotten so much longer since the 40-hour week of the mid-century. I mean, Americans work much longer and much more regular hours now. So I joke that... You know, used to say, a man would say, I'll pick you up at six. And that's when I'll you up. Right. It's like, who knows? Yeah. I mean, that looks like a decline of chivalry, and maybe it is, but it is also a practical expression of the fact that nobody's done with work at five anymore. Right. <laughs> or but, most people aren't. Yeah. Um, and you could, and be, you could actually be working and dating. I mean, you could, being at work together, hanging out and talking could feel like, you know, the same connection of dating. Absolutely. And I, what I thought you were going to say is being out on a date, if you have your cell phone, you can also be taking work emails. Oh, that's true. <laughs> See? Yeah, which totally. adjusted the date, right? Oh, totally wow. a blend. Um, and then I see the last way I think that they shape each other, which is the hardest to measure, but in a way, to me, the most powerful is I do think all these concepts about, you know, how should a person be to be valuable or competitive in the economy I think do shift over to dating. Uh, you know, I've taught at Yale. I teach at Yale undergrads as part of my PhD. And I always think it's sort of funny that, you know, everything we tell them about the job market is like, you have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable. Never expect anything to last a long time. Like you can't put all your eggs in one basket that way. <laughs> and then people look at the hookup culture 
you know, this idea of sort of casual relationships and say, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, it's the exact same logic. You know, Tinder is an Uber for dating. These are just dating on demand apps. Yeah. To me, I think, in a way, the hardest to measure concretely, but the most interesting is the way these these sort of abstract concepts about how we should be and how we can value other people uh, then sort of trickle into the dating, the dating sphere. Mm. Like, yeah, just that's such an interesting idea that our the yeah, how I set you up to be, you know, a healthy employee and a, a marketable employee is the same paradigm I'm using to teach my daughter to what to date. Right. Well, I think it's, I think probably, you know, uh, unconsciously, I think, I don't know anything about you and your daughter, but most dads don't want their daughters to be active right. hookups. Right. No, but no. Right. But I think those values do cross over and they make a lot of sense. And in the case of the apps, I mean, these are literally the same tools. I mean, LinkedIn and OkCupid, you know, a job website and a dating site are actually extremely similar in terms of their structure, their protocols, their layout what they solicit you to do all the time. You know, LinkedIn is like, add this to your resume. <laughs> and OkCupid is like, add another book that you like, and then you'll find the person of your dreams. Oh, uh, wow. So oh, wow. There are a lot of similarities. Yeah, no, between, exactly. Between those platforms. That's interesting. Um, uh, we're speaking with Maura Weigel, author of the book Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, let's take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion. I want to find out if love has changed. Um, are we sure. redefining it? And and also, um, you know, how, do, how does dating follow as women um, have taken their place uh, in, in society as an equal? Um, I think it's got powerful insight as well. Stick with us. More with Maura Weigel and uh, the dating game, folks. Not the game, the history, but uh, it's still a game. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Dating is not dead. It's just changing. It's it's a different game. Now you use an app. And uh, it might be valuable, as uh, Maura Weigel is talking to us, to uh, make sure we're, we're looking at um, the paradigms behind how we look at and view dating or, you know, the, the, the parallel uh, systems that are going on, our work systems, our technology advances... Um, or advancements. I mean, so much is going on that's impacting how we would have to date. Maura Weigel is a PhD uh, candidate at Yale University in comparative literature and film and media studies. She earned her BA um, from Harvard University and is the author of the book Labor of Love, which is her first book. And uh, she researched it and um, tells wonderful stories. Uh, that she re- that she got you know from research, but from history, but also even uh, Mora from your beautiful ninety uh, six year old grandfather. That's true. Um, that's true. And it was actually oh gosh, I'm unexpectedly getting sentimental, but he was actually uh, very ill while I was finishing the book in the very last week, and uh, and I was I went to be with him because I uh, live out in California, but he is in Minnesota, and. Uh, 
It was actually really lovely. I got, I mean, it was sad that yeah. he was sort of in hospice care, and I got to spend, really, as I was writing the conclusion to the book, I was staying in his basement and getting his stories. It was funny, actually, the one of the hospice caregivers who was around most often was another older woman who was from, also from rural Minnesota, and so I actually did get a lot of lovely oh, great. dating anecdotes, sort of like several generations yeah. of Midwestern dating anecdotes <laughs> at that time. But yeah, he had a great he had a great time of it dating. I think he and my grandma really had one of those great 20th century romances, or you know, they met. He went away to World War II. They came back. They uh, so he was happy to talk about oh. it. Isn't that amazing? Kind of the multi generational view. Um, of love and dating, it's it, it probably was exactly what you needed, right? To to be able to yeah. put the well, what I what I love is what, part of what was so fun about writing the book, um, and what I hope is fun about reading it, uh, is that it really is a subject that pretty much every single person has some kind of relationship mm. to, and so you know, my grandfather probably not very many things about his dating life and my dating life were similar. Right. But, um, but yet there is, you know, I think the vulnerability, the desire to connect, the sense of, I think dating all through history has been both kind of anxious making and made people worry about what they're doing it right, but also kind of fun and exciting. And those emotions were all things we could share. Oh, so that was great. Yeah, totally. Well, there is, there's this scandalized. universal, it's a universal experience, right? I guess. <laughs> he might have been scandalized by a few things in the book. In a way, I'm like, it's maybe not the worst <laughs> that he didn't get to read all of it. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that's how <laughs> God works, miracles. Yeah. Um, but, well, and what yeah. a, I think, just a beautiful experience for you. What about um, love? Is it, is it, is it the same? I mean, is it, it seems like it's, it, it might even be taking on, less of a romantic quality or is it taking on more of a romantic quality now now we've got all this technology and ability is it easier to find the perfect person that we think is perfect or are we more likely to settle now well i think that it's a complicated question because i think it's funny when i was writing this book i was thinking oh dating dating as a history this was like this huge revelation to me and then about halfway through, I thought, well, of course, love must have a history, too. All human things yeah. have a history. And I think one way I like to think about it is that I think there are certain aspects of, you know, our desires for one another, how we care for one another that don't change and are maybe part of our biology or sort of part of the kinds of animal we are. Yeah. And, uh, and then parts of it really do change when you think about social roles, you know, whether it's how husbands and wives interact, or how parents and children interact. Some of those things do change over time. And one metaphor I really like to think about it that I borrowed from a philosopher I admire was, is it's, like, it's almost like watching a movie star in a movie. And it's like, if you look at, um, oh, what movie is out now? I don't know. <laughs> Let's say I'll do an old movie, you know, Brad Pitt, Legends of the Fall. It's like if you look at his character, are you looking at Brad Pitt? Or are you looking at the character named whatever the name is? Yeah. Um, and you're looking at both. It's impossible to say where one starts and the other ends. And I kind of think of that in terms of, you know, in any act of love, in any relationship, there are parts that are probably timeless expressions of our nature or our biology. And then I think there are parts that really change in terms of social role and the different kind of scripts that we're given to sort of fulfill 
our desires and instincts. And so I think that that's very abstract, but I do think, yeah. I do think love changes in time in some ways too. How my mother expresses her love to me or to my father is quite different to how her grandmother would have, I think, and absolutely different to how someone who lives in China now would express it. You know, these mm. things do vary across time and place. Do, um, do the but, men, yeah. has it changed with, with women and um, women now really rightfully finally taking this this position um, at least in our dialogue where it might they might feel more equal um, are they is it is it is it changing the dating experience I mean I've had people say I don't know why why aren't the women asking more people out why aren't it's so it's almost like we 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 still haven't necessarily evolved to that point. I think that's absolutely right. And one thing that fascinates me is I think that sometimes our, our norms and our expectations about romance kind of lag behind economic realities. There's sort of other changes mm-hmm. uh, in society. So I think I absolutely agree with you. There is no reason why a woman should not initiate a romantic you know, encounter or relationship. Uh, there's no reason, practically speaking, why women shouldn't take that kind of agency. It's like, Historically, you know, the reason that people think of women as passive and needing to be sought really comes from this, like, situation from the 1800s or older, right. and having to call on women in their homes where women really couldn't, were not allowed to go out in public on their own and see people. That is not our reality. There's no reason we still need to do that, but we do, um, we do still adhere to that cultural idea, often, I think, to the detriment of both men and women. I think it makes you know, oh, yeah. forces women not to be able to express themselves or pursue what they want. It also puts a lot of pressure on men. Like uh-huh. this idea that man, a man has to, a man is responsible for sort of initiating every stage. So I think that we do, uh, I think, you know, if you think about career advice versus relationship advice that are sort of bestsellers, I think it becomes very clear and you'll get the career advice and it's all about like, Ask for it. Lean in. Be assertive. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the romantic advice, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's true. It's like, and you, you bring know, that up. Not in, him, it's you. Yeah. The rules. I mean, there are all these like titles telling women never that they can't ever go after anything. Isn't that? And again, why? I, I guess it is just, it's kind of just, it's almost, um, I don't like a Victorian age kind of concept that, of I don't know, nobility. I don't know what it is. It's. But like you yeah, said, we lean in, after, go after yeah. it, make things happen. Be in, you're empowered. Break the glass ceiling. Now it's like uh, yeah. I'll wait. But I have in my business, I have so many men that are they're shy. They're they don't they they want to date, but they don't feel socially able. But then I have so many women that come see me that are like, "Why aren't the men asking people out?" And I'm like, "Go ask them out." And they look at me like I'm <laughs> nuts. That's not my yeah, role. I think. You know, those gender norms are taught to us from a very young age and put into us very deeply. When I hear you saying that, I'm like, probably everyone wishes we could just, like, call time out and suspend all those rules. Exactly. I think it would be great. I think we should do. I'm calling for that on the radio. That's <laughs> great right now. But, uh, but I, think that, uh, I think that women are really taught to think that they won't be lovable if they show certain kinds of initiative and agency, and it's like sort of this deep fear that a lot of us feel. And I think men similarly are taught by all these signs in the culture that they're not like real men if they don't, you know, ask women out. Again, I would say I do think there is sort of an unconscious economic aspect. 
men do still earn more money yeah. than women. You know, I think it's whatever it is, 70 cents on the dollar, 77 cents. Um, women are disproportionately bear the burden of the risk of pre- unwanted pregnancy right. and child rape. So there are all these ways that some of the same old disadvantages do apply more yeah. than the lean-in crowd would like to think about. Um, but, yeah, I think that I think that these, these norms are counterproductive. Uh, and sort of outdated, so I am calling to. You've done it. You're... All the ladies go ask them out. <laughs> well, and maybe maybe it's an echo back to a hundred plus years ago, where you know an aggressive woman or a woman strong enough to go against the norms would go out to dinner with a gentleman and then be arrested for prostitution, even though she was just going to dinner. So maybe it there's is, this this evolutionary echo of be careful, don't step beyond the is. mark, or you're in trouble. I think it is. It's crazy. What um, what do you see as the future of dating? I mean, now we have all this technology, and you know, it, which almost turns into a game. And I might even feel like, hey, yeah, I spent an hour on Tinder, so I've dated tonight. Right. Well, I think that through that exactly gets at the crux of it. I mean, I, I should say, you know, if I knew the future of dating, I live out here in San Francisco. I would have. I would have an app, and I'd be. <laughs> You'd be a billionaire. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know exactly, but I think that. You know, I think that what we see now in the past few years in terms of trends with these dating apps and how people use them is this push towards more flexibility in relationships. Um, Some people say more efficiency, which I think is a little crazy for reasons we could talk about. Um, But I think that there are good things about that. You know, whether you are a recently divorced person or an LGBT, LGBT person, or let's say someone with physical disability, you know, someone differently able. Um, I did all sorts of research on demographics who were able to connect, but have really had trouble dating uh, beforehand and found these online tools incredibly useful. And they're useful to people, you know, I personally believe that people should have freedom to define whatever kinds of relationships they want. So they're very useful in that respect. I think the downside, you know, the downside of flexibility or the flip side of it is something like, you know, what I would call precariousness uh, that these apps encourage us. You know, any app makes money by people using the app. It's sort of a funny, I think Christian Rudder, who's the founder of OkCupid, said it's a funny kind of service business where if you do your job well, yeah. the customer never comes back. <laughs> right. So, uh so all of these apps are strongly incentivized to keep people on the app and keep them from pairing off. Tinder, which you brought up, is a perfect example. I mean, Tinder game, Tinder, I just said it, Tinder, you know, we said we play Tinder. It's like a video game about dating. Yeah. Um, and I think that, ironically, these very tools that are supposed to make the process, quote-unquote, efficient, whatever that would mean for a human relationship, um, that these tools of efficiency actually lead us to waste a huge amount of time basically doing free work for the dating app, which right. is what we're doing exactly. when we swipe for hours. So I think that, unfortunately, I think we'll see more and more companies that try to make, you know, try to make money and try to create businesses off of, you know, harnessing these very deep, unchanging impulses that all humans have to connect with other humans. Oh, I think that's and, great. That's yeah. that's great. That's great insight. Uh, they're tools yeah. of entertainment, really, right? And entertainment doesn't always equal partnering. Yeah, I think probably it rare it rarely does. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um, it's I mean it's, it's the I same think, thing. You can go to a thousand you know uh, movies, but that might keep yeah. you from talking too. 
Exactly, exactly. It's a great analogy. Or it's like a bar, like, you know, a bartender. I you think of the mom and dad, usually the mom, who would run the Jane Austen courtship scenario. Right. In that situation, the parents have a strong financial, legal, and hopefully emotional interest in their children pairing off with the right person. Um, a bar owner, you know, the person who owns the platform, if you yeah. want to put it that way, or creates the site of courtship in the era of dating, has the opposite incentive. And the bartender doesn't care if you get married. He would rather you didn't. Oh, that's um, he true. He just wants tips and people to keep coming and buying drinks. And it's the same with these dating apps. Oh, man. Um, Maura, you're on it. That's it. You solved that. We've got a. That's a great shift in my paradigm right there. I have never thought of that. You're brilliant, Maura Weigel. Appreciate your great work. Keep writing, and uh, I, I look forward to the next book. Thank you so much. Go you bet. You bet. <laughs> okay. All na- right. Thank Bye-bye. you. The name of the book is Labor of Love: The Invention of Dating, and uh, you can go find more out about Maura at uh, MauraWeigel.com. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Great insight uh, from Maura Weigel. I, I'm, you know, I'm convinced that dating's—it's it, different. It's not what it used to be, and that's why I think, as uh, the older generation, we always look back and we're like, "Ah, you kids just aren't doing it quite right." But we, with technology and the advancement of technology, the advancement and uh, equalization of women in the in life and in the workplace. And we say they're equal, except again, if it's still if they're still ending earning sixty cents on the dollar, or less, um, or I mean, sorry, forty cents on the dollar or thirty cents on the dollar to a man, then you know the idea of asking a lot of guys out isn't financially responsible. So we we need to blow up some of these paradigms. And I guess it's one thing if you want to, you could just sit there and be mad. Uh, and and wish that the world would change so this would all fly straight for you, or you you can adjust. Um, one of my big beliefs when I talk uh, to singles groups and singles organizations, uh, certain people just kind of swim into a pool. I call it just a pool, a pool of single candidates, right? Um, and they just swim in, and they they just they're they they're good at finding what they want, and they. They're good at and socially skilled enough to make it happen, and then they swim out of the pool with their future partner, and then they'll go date, and if it doesn't work, they'll go back to the pool. But some people spend so much time in the pool that we actually forget what our goal is, right? And we we start commiserating with the pool. We start hanging out with the pool. We start making plans with the entire pool. And our belief is that we're more likely to find a, a partner if we are in the pool. But the downside to being in the pool is uh, some people are intimidated by pools of swimming singles. It's scary. I can't tell you, and I don't get it. I think men are losing confidence, and women are gaining confidence, but also won't take the initiative to go start in, you know, initiating the dates and making them happen. And... Again, more and more, I'm I'm working with the guy that just doesn't dare do it, and I, he goes up to a single and feels dismissed or not not safe. I don't know how you fix that. 
And so I think what people do is they fall back on something that's a lot safer for them, which is an app. And and then all of a sudden they might join into kind of more of a hookup culture where I'm not – I don't want to date you, but let's – yeah, we could go meet and maybe kiss, make out. But don't don't make me – don't make me relate to you. Don't make me find out about your family. I don't want to meet your dad. And so we got to be careful. If you're if you're in that hookup culture, you're going to be hurt, right? And you're not necessarily learning how to create a more intimate, deep relationship. Um, the rules are changing a bit, and we got to be willing to change with them if we want to be in the game. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you uh, love stronger is the goal. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a YouTube video of a, of a, a sister um, and, a, and some brothers. Um, everybody has seen, you know, when you get your wisdom teeth out, they pull your teeth and then they drug, you're all drugged up. And then a lot of people have been making vi- videos about, you know, how out of control you are or the dumb things you say when you're under the influence of the medication after surgery, right? So this these two brothers uh, have basically – they picked their sister up and for some reason mom and dad are like, yeah, do this. This is a great idea because they seem to have been involved. And they put this elaborate scheme together that once the sister was all drugged up and they were bringing her home – they they had this basically scheme where on the radio an emergency alert comes up that basically says um, that that there's basically a zombie apocalypse that there's a virus that's spreading and um, this woman is under drugs and her uh, so let me just play some of the clips for you this is crazy um, this is the uh, emergency alert system. So, what the heck? Did you? What? <laughs> I was driving like a slug to get to the house. Hold on, hold on, mom's calling. So, the girl's her mouth is packed with gauze, and she's like, "You're driving like a slug. Get to the house." She's mad. She's you know she's post surgery, high on drugs, angry. And the brothers, um, but they, they they had this elaborate thing playing. So all of a sudden, she buys into the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse. But then we get home, and they're trying to fill the car up with stuff. And you got to ask questions, right? You got to find out like what do we keep, what do we not keep. Listen um, to uh, the next clip about uh, this is about which animal, which pet we keep. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The cat. You okay. idiot! Okay. No. What do we do with the dog? Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Um. <laughs> so you have to choose between the dog and the cat. She's like, the cat, you idiot. Duh. The dog's already dying. 
And um, the next one is about what what chocolate cake we should take. Millicent, we can only take Fun Betty or chocolate cake. Which one do we take? Fun Betty. Do you want Fun Betty or chocolate? Which? No, Millicent. This is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Fun Betty chocolate. (laughs) Why? Why? She's yelling. Why does it matter? They're zombies. No, this is important. Important, Millicent. Funfetti or chocolate. Um, and then they got to go to Mexico, right? Because dad, I guess, is on a trip in, in Las Vegas and they got to get to Mexico, dad says. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. <laughs> I can say I can say pants. So this poor girl, <laughs> she's sitting in the car the whole time, and the brothers are running around. That's why they're out of breath. At one point, they're loading gardening equipment they're in loading the back, gardening. and she goes, what do we need a garden hoe for? Yeah. Get the guns. What are we doing? They hand her a supposed weapon with a trigger, but it's really one of those extension bars for seniors that help them get their cereal off the top shelf. Yeah. The little grabber bar. Like, Here's the safety, and here you <laughs> So then they then they're like so Millicent we about Costco they got to go to Costco should we go to Costco listen to her reply do you think Costco should we go to Costco first no it's gonna be a bloodbath in there <laughs> she's probably right she's probably right should we go to Costco no it's gonna be a bloodbath in there they filmed the entire thing so we're gonna post it on our uh, at Dr Matt show Twitter feed and you gotta you gotta look it up it is it's funny. It's funny. It's brother, sister gone awry. That that line um, about the cat. Did you see how she knew exactly which one she keeps? Oh yeah. Like there wasn't even a break. <laughs> she hates the dog. The cat. The dog is dying. <laughs> We're going with the cat. Um, but then it was so. Even though they, it was like, it was a pretty extensive game they played on their sister they saved her because right when they told her yeah at the end they're like uh, it's a joke we're gonna go home now she got this look in her eye and you it was like that moment where you know she's either gonna lose it start crying or freak out and start hurting somebody and they turn the video off i think it'll be worse when she's you know i think it was worse when she came out of the drug haze that yeah. she was in <laughs> when she realized what was there and she saw the video, she'd probably go nuts. I know. I'm dying to know what she felt about that. But who – what brother hasn't loved to play a trick like that on their sister? They would. We'd all like to do that. Did you ever have a family member tease sure. you? At some point. I mean we had my brother convinced he was adopted. That's that's a common one. <laughs> well, that's an easy one. Everyone he does, does that one. My sister and I look like my father's side of the family. Yeah. My brother looks like my mother's side of the family. So it was an easy easy he was uh, adopted story to to buy. That's dramatic. That's poor. That's sad it's, for him. It's fine. He's 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 grown out of it. My sisters used to just say, "Hey, touch the lighter." So. <laughs> Back in the day, cars had lighters that you'd push in, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they'd stick, and then you pull them out, and then there's these orange coils that are just glowing steaming. hot. Yeah, yeah. Glowing I used hot. to play with that all the time. And that one of my sisters was like, "Touch it." And now that's that's your electrical port. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that's just where we plug our our tools and our devices. And so things have changed. I mean, I'd probably rather have a zombie apocalypse threat than have somebody tell me to touch a fiery coil of lava. Right. Just saying. I used to sit in the car and burn stuff on it. Did you? Yeah, like we had paper in the, you know, just in the, in the glove compartment. You're yeah. like, Shh, and then toss it out the window. <laughs> Those were the days. Again, back in the days when we didn't care about kids. 
We didn't buckle them in. We didn't have seats. Slide around the back seat. It's fine. Don't worry about it. This is great, Dad. Do you remember when you got in the car and the seatbelts were scalding hot? My first car seat as a kid was made out of uh, foam, but most of the foam was gone, so it was just metal and, like, (laughs) duct tape. (laughs) And look how you turned out. It's great. You're fine. Interesting stuff, folks. Man, have, have we changed technology, bringing families closer together. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We could make up whatever story you need to make up to get over the wall. The problem is it's your wall. Some of us, instead of getting over the wall, we just, you know, build a really nice lattice that we secure to the wall. And then we create really nice, you know, shrubs around the wall. We paint the wall. We maybe draw a really nice painting and picture on it so we can enjoy the wall more. Maybe you just ought to get over the wall. Now, believe me, there's many things I just have trouble getting over. And yet, as I listen to Jason, you're like, well, duh, make a list. And doesn't, does it not make sense to make the list and make it detailed? If, if on the list I today put, write the first chapter of my book. I have four books that are in my head. I've even white papered them. That's how, that's how far I've gotten is I've actually written complete outlines on four different books. <laughs> Haven't written them yet. I've written one book. And the problem is that book, that wall shredded me. So I am like, I am never going to go write another book. But I have some great white papers if you want to read them. But then I have this thing in my head and my heart that keeps saying, hey, Matt, you got to write this book or I'll go do a speech and they'll all say, tell us more about that body, mind, spirit idea. Well, it's going to be in my upcoming book. When will that be out? At this rate, 2060, if we're lucky. I mean, I got this wall. I've got to get over it. And I'm you. You're me. We're the same people. We've all got something. But make the list. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And then be willing to just toss the list tonight. Okay, I'm done. Didn't get it all done. But I did get my computer set up, and I did uh, tighten up that the white paper on my book. I, t- I, t- I tightened up my outline. Great. Tomorrow, let's just start writing it. Okay, what do I need to do to write it? Make some time, create the space, sit down, lock my door to my office, offend everyone in the office so they don't come near me, make the list, and take a break. Um, How essential is the break idea? Now, some of us just maybe take too many breaks, like watching Netflix. Terry, on the other hand, just watches... Marvel comics, DC comics, and trailers for all the shows coming out. There's more to life than that. Take the break, whatever break you need. It doesn't matter. Just take it. What am I supposed to do, Matt? What am I supposed to do when my husband, that's all he does is take breaks. Well, let's see. Let's look at our options. Uh, Complain. Um, Ignore. Avoid. Talk about him. Uh, Make him pay for it. Or you could relate. You could talk. You could communicate. Well, I do, but every time I talk to him about it, he gets mad. Okay? That's common. Uh, Every time I have projects that my wife needs done and I don't do them, 
and then she brings it up like, are you going to do the yard soon? Oh, man. Who I'm usually mad at, by the way, when I get mad at you for bringing up the projects I need to do. I'm really mad at myself, aren't I? I'm mad at me. And yet I, I blame you. It's, it's a neat thing we do. But I'm mad because you're telling me something I know I should be doing. And yet I'm, I'm caught on the wall. Or I'm watching Netflix on the other side of the wall and I don't even realize I'm no longer trying to get over the wall. I've just now accommodated the wall. Made excuses about the wall. One of my rules when I teach and work with couples is just do something different. Just do something different. It's If your spouse is going to be mad either way, then maybe just go out and start doing the yard. And he'll come out mad. I guarantee you he'll come out mad. But remember who he's mad at is uh, – He's mad at himself. Well, I don't want to make him mad. You're already making him mad by asking him every day. (laughs) He's already mad when he pulls in the yard and the driveway and he sees that his yard is not as nice as everyone else's grass. It's not cut. It's not green. The yard's a mess. He already feels that way, which might be one of the reasons he gets in the funk. So if talking's not working, then just quietly go start working on it. Oh, well, why should I have to work on it? Because it bothers you. Go work on what bothers you. Well, aren't we just enabling him? Well, then nag him and see how that goes. You got to choose somewhere, right? Nag or we're going to work on it. I mean, remember, it's your life too. And if your wall is your husband not getting over his wall, then do something to get over the wall. Right? Adjust. Oh, it's always up to me. It is. Yeah, it is. As long as it's bothering you, it's always up to you. As long as you want to improve it, it's always up to you. As long as you're the one that wants to change, it's always up to you. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. What do I know? I'm just one of us. We're all jacked up. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can every day to give us all the tools we need. Not just you. We all need them. I talk from my experience being stuck on the wall. We'll be right back, folks. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have a friend who just can't seem to recognize that they're being duped? They don't realize that the door-to-door salesman has fooled them again or that the Facebook is never really going to give away free money just because you copy and pasted something into your status. But how can you recognize, you know, when you're being duped? And 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 why is it that some people are more likely to fall for it, and uh, some aren't. For that matter, what are, the, what are these people doing that are duping us? What are their tricks? What do they use in order to kind of trick us? Well, uh, we've got a great um, guest joining us. Dr. Jeremy Sherman is with us. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Sherman received his Ph.D. in decision theory. He has written over 475 articles for Psychology Today and um, is a founding member of an 18-year-old research project founded by Harvard and Berkeley biologist Terrence Deacon. Today he's here to talk to us about how not to be fooled by jerks and not to become one. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for being here. This is uh, this is an interesting article, and um, 
I really I, I loved it. You've got to describe for us two things, okay? Or define, I guess we have to define our terms. Um, your article talks about uh, suckers and jerks. And, you know, for every jerk, there, I guess, needs to be a sucker. And for every sucker, there's a jerk. Explain what uh, your definitions of these. Okay, I'm probably using a, a pretty normal definition of both. And but I am fascinated by how to define them. Um, uh, because we generally define them as anybody who disagrees with us. So if you disagree with me, then you're a sucker or you're a jerk. And I, I have been long interested in trying to find a more objective way to describe that, or else we end up with the world we have these days, which is lots of different factions that disagree with each other, and they're all confident that someone, that their opposition is jerks and suckers. Right. But I, yeah, so, so one way I've framed it is, what is a butthead other than someone I butt heads with? Um, <laughs> it's, a, uh, and, and it's, that, it's true. It's almost like instinctively anybody that doesn't think like me, I might think, uh, meets the role of a sucker or a jerk, I guess. That's right, a sucker yeah. or a sucker or a jerk. And actually, in a way, the difference between them is just input and output. Uh, that is, if I'm taking in someone else's... Uh, uh, beliefs that uh, then I'm a sucker, but then if I espouse those beliefs, then I'm a jerk. I mean, there's one way to think about that. But it, but I'm really basically working with the familiar definitions, but looking for a way to get beyond our subjective treatment of them. What really goes into being a sucker or a jerk um, that isn't about content? It's really about how you manage, how you think, how you shop among interpretations. It's not about what you think, but how you think. Huh. How you shop among interpretations, because there's many ways to see something or to be pitched something. And so this is really about how you evaluate the data. That's, a, that's right. It's, it, it, and interpretation is, uh, is really what it comes down to. We talk about reading situations. Well, when, when you think about reading, it's not a, a matter of automatically having a transfer of Truths from one source to another. Right. It's always got interpretation in there. It's open to interpretation. So it is largely about how we shop among interpretations. Hmm. That's and, a. That's a. And it, and, oh, go ahead. And it mat- And it matters a lot. It's it's some of the biggest shopping decisions we ever make. So I'm interested in it uh, for social welfare generally. You know how to how to make society work better. But I'm really mostly interested in it at a personal level. If you shop poorly among interpretations, you can end up wasting years of life and millions of dollars uh, in the long run because you've bought into something that doesn't actually serve you. So I'm really interested in this from a personal perspective as well. How to not be a sucker in our personal lives is where we get the most traction on this issue. No, it's so true. And um, I guess that's part of it is because, like you were saying, if somebody tells me something at my doorstep about what the bugs are going to do to my house. That's why I need to get pest control. Um, I guess I, I now have to interpret it. And you're saying I need to take probably a more active role in questioning the data and shopping my interpretation versus the data they're selling and, 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 and kind of measure this out so it's the best – it's betterment for me and my family. Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly straightforward case. I mean that is one, – one can – 
then get a second opinion from an uh, from another exterminator or something like that. But let's take a more personal and subjective version of it. Suppose you're in a relationship that isn't working for you. It could be a business relationship or a personal relationship, a romantic relationship, and it, it's you're feeling the urge to get out of it. But the other person calls you a quitter or uncaring or unloving yeah. or thinking about leaving. Well, you can end up spending decades of your life in a relationship that turns out not to be the best for you because you're persuaded by what turns out to be empty rhetoric. Let's take the, let's take the concept of uncaring. It's used as a pejorative. It's used as a negative. It means you're doing something wrong when someone accuses you of it. No one feels complimented when they're told that they're uncaring. So we know it's bad. What does it mean? It means you don't care about something. It implies a rule that one should always care about everything. Hmm. Well, you can't do that. Nobody does that. Right. So I'm even talking about at that level, that, that at, at that personal level, if you take that as evidence that you are wrong for not caring about this or that, whatever it is, it could be a person, it could be a cause, someone could call you uncaring for not making something a priority. We're all making things priorities, and that means we're also making other things not priorities. And if we, if we don't understand how that kind of rhetoric can move us, then we become suckers. Yeah. And and I guess and an an outsider would I guess see that move by your partner as them being a jerk. Um, uh, that's right, and you being a sucker. Yep, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not arguing that one should leave or not leave. Right, right. That's not the question. It's here. just their method. The it's their. Is, is it the method that they're using? Swayed. It's it's being swayed. One way I think about it is that we we have to shift between deciding and decided on lots of decisions throughout our lives. And um, often we are shoved over into a decided state by empty rhetoric, rhetoric that can't actually solve the problem, but makes us think that we don't have to think about it anymore. So I'm more interested in keeping alive the decision, the deciding long enough to make a sound decision, a practical decision from a personal, from, for, for you in that situation. And the rhetoric basically puts us to sleep. If someone says, well, you're uncaring, I, I can't leave this relationship because I wouldn't want to be uncaring, right. or I wouldn't want to be called a quitter. That has decided it. It basically smuggled a decision into a description. Someone thinks that they're just calling you a, uh, calling a spade a spade when they say, hey, look, you're just a quitter. You know, that's, that's what you are. No, it's not that simple. We all quit things. You can't live your entire life as though um, you never quit something. The question is what to quit. And you can't get to that question if you fall for the kind of empty rhetoric that says uh, quitting is always a bad thing to do. Yeah. You know what? You see this a lot, I guess, uh, don't you, in in the rhetoric of our, our of our politics, of our policymaking, even in the whole gun discussion now, it, it, a lot of stuff is being folded in. And like you said, decisions, it's our, our, our apparent decisions of what side we're on are all being smuggled just into the rhetoric or the description of the problem. What you want to kill yeah, people? You know what I mean? Yeah, we, exactly. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it, so, yeah, so I, a CPA considers uh, April 15th, the season, the month coming up to it, to be their season. This is my season. Um, yeah. 
politics is a fascinating time to be studying, uh, a fascinating arena to be watching this occur in. And, and, and we're seeing um, extensions of the slippery, pseudo-profound rhetoric, the rhetoric that sounds fancy but isn't actually saying anything, um, or is making a decision from, with only a one-sided argument. So to take an old example, we were told that we couldn't leave uh, the Iraq war because it would be cutting and running. Well, that's just a direct parallel to what I was just talking about. Cutting and running is to reflect negatively on leaving something. Well, do you want to say that you've cut and run every time you leave everything you ever left? Yeah. You can't do that. Sometimes Some of the decisions are good ones. Some of them are bad ones. You don't want that rhetoric to decide it. And yet in politics, we use that to an extraordinary extent. And I guess, um, is it always, like you said, is, is it always just a really nicely packaged statement, like cut, cutting and running, you know, your, your boots on the ground or whatever? So I, I, guess, I guess it's really about the language that we're using. Is, the, is that language sculpted to, to make this happen, or is it just evolving in our normal day-to-day conversations? Well, it it's a combination, and um, it's irresistible. If you're in a position of power and you need to justify um, to a receptive audience, a gullible audience, you can't help but use this stuff. So one of my fascinations is that rhetoric gets better and better over time. That is, if we find a new rhetorical trick by which to convince people of things, whether it be in a partnership or whether it be in politics at any level, in any arena, we don't forget that rhetoric. That is, it works for us, so we're not going to forget it. Yeah. And yet at the same time, a sucker is born every minute. That <laughs> is, we are all born naive. So it's very hard for critical thinking skills to keep up with the quality of rhetoric that's available. And I do have hopes in this election that one of the, one of the, one of the effects, if we survive this election, <laughs> will be that we will have become more sophisticated in our shopping among interpretations. Yeah. Because oh. you, you need a whole lot of training in a whole lot of bad rhetoric before you start to see that it's bad rhetoric. And in a way, we get that over the years. For example, you look at an advertisement from the 1940s and you say, God, who would believe that stuff? Right. So we do become somewhat more sophisticated, but it's very hard to keep up. Well, and it sounds like, too, Dr. Sherman, we've got to be talking about it like we are in order to maybe point it out more. Um, Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeremy Sherman, um, who is the author of the book Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Um, Wonderful insight there, plus 400-plus articles on Psychology Today. We'll come back, continue the discussion about how not to be fooled by jerks and how not to become one. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about how not to be fooled by jerks or to become one. And in order to do that, you got to sucker-proof yourself. And there's certain conditions that our next guest or our current guest is uh, talking to us about. Dr. Jeremy Sherman joins us. He uh, has a Ph.D. in decision theory and has written over 475 articles for Psychology Today 
One of them um, is this topic we're discussing right now. Plus, he also has a book uh, titled Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and thank you for reminding me how prolific I've been lately. I'm up to 1,200 articles. Are you serious? Do you ever sleep? I I, I do, but I write pretty efficiently these days. Um, The ideas keep on coming. This is a wonderful wonderful topic. It It is. Because it just keeps on expanding and giving you all sorts of new angles on things. Well, and this is the perfect time to have you, you, because... You're, you can help us cut through a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing, and it seems like this election year is is almost the perfect laboratory for your um, the kind of decision-making theories. Um, talk to us about uh, – again, let me just kind of make sure I get this straight. Uh, part of this is about you need suckers who kind of fall for the jerky rhetoric, who like the packaging, right? That's right. That is, um, in, in politics, we talk about uh, dog whistles. Uh, that is um, a sound that resonates for some audiences and not others. Um, and I, and I want to set this straight up front. Though I am progressive in general in my own politics, yeah. I'm not really primarily concentrating here on the substance of the arguments. I'm interested in how they're made. Yeah, their method. And huh? that is a... And that, and that is a key to becoming, to avoiding being a sucker. We generally think that messages that confirm what we already believe are true. It takes huge resistance to overcome that tendency in ourselves, the tendency to simply assume it's more, it's more true because we already believed it. Right. Um, so, so, so that's part of the training to, to, for critical thinking. Is that, uh, I think of this the, the work as learning how to spin how to unspin, and how to do both even-handedly. How to spin is rhetoric. Uh, How to unspin is critical thinking. And doing both even-handedly means that I have to be as good at at spinning my opponent's argument, almost like a lawyer. Yeah. That is, I got to be able to make my opponent's case as convincingly as possible, um, even though my tendency will be to make my own case as convincingly as possible, and I need to be able to unspin my own case um, as well as I can unspin my my opponents. Because what, what most people do with it when they learn rhetoric is they learn rhetoric and critical thinking is they use the critical thinking to attack their opponents, and they use the rhetoric to spin their own arguments. So wow. I'm really interested in how you do it even handedly. Yeah. And so, so one key, do, do you sense that um, as, a, as a population, I mean, we may lack a lot of critical thinking skills, don't you think? To actually to, to, to sort through and unspin this stuff. Yeah, and it's not just that we're not informed. It's that we're not motivated to, to, to learn critical thinking skills that we – because they're a little dangerous. Hmm. That is, they can undermine our own mojo. Yeah. I need a certain amount of – of, of uh, confidence that I'm right in order to get through my day, in order to stay focused on what I'm doing. And so I'm very unlikely to want to know how to dismantle my own sources of mojo. Huh, this sure. is why we end up with a country full of factions that are absolutely confident that they are 100% right and that the other side is suckers and fools. Mm. What about um, one of the things in your article you cite is part of this is just, I guess, education. And I'm not I I guess you're not talking formal education, but 
people that are more apt or likely to buy into a, a jerk's argument would probably be somebody who's who's not as as educated or I guess is not either as isn't open to wanting this information because it'll impact our mojo like you're saying or isn't looking for other answers well yes and and I would argue that that's not just that's not a rare pathology I would say that that's fundamental to human nature that is we find what what feels like a groove to us and then we want to stay in it it's very disorienting to um, to, to, to reopen questions, big questions, or fundamental assumptions in our lives, and rethink them. It's very hard to do. It's, it's costly. I do think that some of this does require formal education. We talk about how our education system is failing us, but really we have to prioritize an education, and the shopping among interpretations is the biggest priority, I think, for a capable society. It, 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 you just that's that's got to be what education does more than anything else. Facts we can now get on the internet, uh, it, it intermingled with all sorts of nonsense. But of course, you can get at facts if you want. How you shop among those facts for how to, for what to what to invest in? That's really difficult work, and I do think it requires some formal education that that doesn't get enough attention in schools because we mostly still focus on facts. Right. Right. Give us the um, you. You gave about uh, I think it's four basic questions um, that help us to to um, I guess unsucker or sucker proof ourselves. What, what are what are some of the things we can be doing to make sure we don't fall into the category of sucker? Uh, so the first of them would be: Can you state if you hear something profound sounding because it uses let's say those dog whistle words, the words that evoke in you or stir you to enthusiasm and, 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 uh, and all that, can you state it in plain language? Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday, a libertarian friend yesterday, who told me that freedom unites. Um, okay, those are two <laughs> powerful sounding words. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was challenging him because I was saying, it's interesting, you, libertarians want to make a very big change in the country. Um, and and to do that, to make a very big change, you have to unite. But at the same time, you're all advocates of anarchy and doing your own thing. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, he had this pat answer, freedom unites. Okay, well, those are two simple enough words. Uh-huh. But if you start to unpack it, you notice, wait a second, that's kind, of a, that's kind of an oxymoron. It's like saying unite for autonomy. It's a strange thing to say. Yeah, and yeah. So there's a kind of a, kind of a so it's, it's about unpacking in that way. So now here's, an, here's another one. Freedom unites, he, he says. Let's just take this as an example. Can you find an exception to that? If you, because generally what, what, what satisfies the sucker part of every one of our minds the part that just goes by intuition and doesn't think about it, is a, is a sense that you have found a universal truth. Well, he was definitely saying it that way. Freedom right. unites always. Can you find an exception sure. to that? Sure. When you're you free, find an exception. yeah, you're free yeah. and you're starving to death, and you no longer want freedom. You now want to eat. Right. That's right. Uh, that would be an example. But also, freedom, if, if you and I are free to choose to do whatever we want— Chances are reasonably good, given just the statistics, that you will end up wanting to do something different from me. So, That's right. So how do you want you know, And it so doesn't unite us anymore. 
Right, and also we can think of plenty of situations in which it's not the case. So the second point, so the first one is say it in plain language, that is strip it of its rhetoric. Uh, two is can you find an exception? If you can find one exception, then it's apparently not this general universal sweeping formula that will solve all your problems all the time. Yeah. And yet, so, so this is basically an argument against what's called confirmation bias, the tendency for all of us to look for examples that support whatever we believe in, not look for exceptions. But if we really want, you know, it's solid understanding, better interpretations, we have to be very careful about what's a universal rule and what isn't a universal rule. Um, and a lot of stuff is touted as a universal rule when it can't possibly be. Right. In fact, um, and, and speaking it as a fact, oh, I guess that's another one of your points is, yeah, because you can speak so strongly, it sounds factual. That's why you're saying we've got a question using these questions, this data, this rhetoric. That's right. And actually, and rhetoric takes all sorts of forms. The general definition of it is basically mercenary uh, mercenary forms of persuasion. That is, they can be used in support of any cause. They are not uh, specific to your argument, but they're just kind of a a general purpose way of tipping the scale, putting a thumb on the scale, either uh, discounting alternative perspectives or amplifying the power of of a chosen perspective. That's what rhetoric does. It's it's kind of generic in in that sense. And that gets to the third point, which is, could your opposition use your argument against you? For example, we, we like to sound perseverance further, but we usually employ it when we're thinking about um, things that we would like to see more of. So imagine if ISIS claimed perseverance further. Uh-huh. We wouldn't be so happy with it then. <laughs> right. So it's a matter of basically turning the tables um, in order to see whether this thing is actually as true and valid and affirming as you think it is. If your opponent can use it against you, then it's not as true as all of that. Um, and, then the, and finally, the fourth one does get down to this basic point I was making earlier, which is uh, we often use loaded terms as if they're merely descriptive. So right. notice that I could, I could, uh, if I don't, if I don't like what you, uh, uh, your commitments, I can call you stubborn. Mm-hmm. If I like your, if I like your uh, commitments, I can call you steadfast. What's the difference between them? A matter of opinion about whether it will turn out well. It's yeah. not at all. There's not a difference between them. It's not like a stubbornness and perseverance. Or, or steadfastness are apples and oranges. They're one and the same thing. The only difference is the loading. And so it's very useful to be able to strip the loading off of something. When someone calls you a quitter or someone calls you steadfast, those are in a way sort of opposites. Try to, try to strip that off. Translate from the positive to the negative, from the negative to the positive, so that you gain the power of neutral thinking. So you can shop among interpretations. I love it. Oh, that's such great advice. And and we're going to have to have you back, Jeremy, because this this is going to be a long season of politics. And I think yeah, just – but to have your tools, um, this is what makes us a critical thinker. But also, it, I mean, it can also help us be a motivator and somebody that can enroll people into our thinking. So I appreciate you being with us again, Dr. Jeremy Sherman. Um, go check out his book that uh, – 
is called Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind-Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think, and uh, maybe even more valuable as well, uh, was also 1,200-plus articles on Psychology Today. All you got to do is look up Jeremy Sherman and Psychology Today. You'll get to his page and start downloading and reading all of those. We appreciate you, Dr. Sherman. And for the rest of us, let's keep our minds uh, open. And let's question what we're hearing. Let's question uh, how we think. That way we don't have to fall into the sucker category. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How powerful is it to be able to look at your own thinking and uh, your own language? How many times have you sat there and had somebody selling you something and you thought, wow, I do need this magical berry? To, to change my life. You you weren't even thinking about, you know, buying a timeshare. It wasn't even on your mind. Yeah, that happened to me one time when this guy sold me some beans. He said yeah. they were magic. Yeah. But they never grew. Right. Yeah. And that's when you made bean salad. Three no. bean salad, five bean salad. No, they were rotten by the time I dug them back up. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, a sucker's born every day. Did you learn anything in our last segment? Um, I, I was kind of sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe listen up to this segment because maybe we can still teach you something. It's such a it's such a battle we all fight where we want to belong. We want to, you know, we appreciate the neighbors sharing what they are sharing with us because, you know, we don't want to be left out. Except sometimes we do. Do you have the ability to see through what others are doing. Do you have that insight? You don't – I think like uh, the good Dr. Sherman was saying earlier, we, we are all going to be a little naive. It's, it's part of humanity. But you don't have to be a whole lot naive. And if you've been kicked in the head before, you don't have to offer your head for more kicking. We can start to notice the trends, notice the, the words, notice the, the content – that people are sending us. And even as you listen to the political rhetoric, can can you find an exception to what Donald Trump is saying or to what Hillary Clinton is saying? Is there an exception to this? Um, can, can your opposition, for example, use the idea that they could build walls to keep Americans out? Yeah. If your opposition could use the exact same fact or point, then you're probably starting to just jump on the rhetoric bandwagon. I get it. It's exciting. It's powerful. It's it's what you want to you want to you know be a part of a movement. You want to be a part of change. But just because it's stated strongly and factually doesn't mean it's actually factual. You can believe something. You know, very strongly. Think about it. When was the last time you actually totally believed something and then found out it not to be true? 
And it's hard because in order to do this, we have to open our minds up. And it's called critical thinking. And one of the things I think we battle as a country is we're, I don't know that we're really great yet at teaching people to be critical thinkers. Yet we live in an internet world where not being able to think critically could be to your detriment, right? Because otherwise you're just going to keep drawing back to the same well of information. And it doesn't make it one way right or wrong. It just makes it not complete. So one of the words that uh, I've been looking up and recently studying is a little bit about the word perfect or perfection, which um, I found to mean um, more than just that you are absolutely without flaw. It might also mean that you are just more complete, more whole. Whole means healthy. And a lot of our interpretations, as Dr. Sherman was talking about, most of our interpretations of other people, of other groups of people, of most of our prejudice, most of our assumptions and interpretations are not whole. They're not complete. For every uh, person, uh, Muslim, uh, you talk about in this world that is going to come in and try to kill us, I can show you a, a million exceptions. There are just as many exceptions to the rule as as you can find. So be careful. Look for whole answers, complete answers. Watch your bias and watch how strongly you argue something. Because um, many times, even though you feel you're completely right, you're going to find out you're not. There's still more you're missing. Let's open it up, broaden it up. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. We're here every Friday from uh, 9 a.m. Mountain Time to 10 a.m. Mountain Time or 11 a.m. Eastern Time, depending where you're at. Cole, you're from Pittsburgh, so that's a different time as well. Eastern Time. We're talking about 11 o'clock over there. All right. (laughs) So if you're in Pittsburgh, it's 11 o'clock, and hopefully it's sunny out like it is here. Anyway, every week on the show, we help you find the best in entertainment. We're all about helping families enjoy things together, whether it's movies, whether it's TV, board games, books, music, sports, you name it. We've got it here on Screen Cleaning. And usually about this time in the program, Cole and I would uh, spend some time talking about the very best in entertainment news But we have a couple of uh, movies that we want to tell you about, one of which came out a while ago, and that is the film Won't You Be My Neighbor? Which is why you actually bring up the fact that I'm from western Pennsylvania today, right? Well, actually, I was just asking you the question, Cole, (laughs) won't you be my neighbor? Oh, I I would love to. Our next-door neighbor moved out about a year ago, so there's nobody there. You don't have any neighbors? I literally need a neighbor, is what I'm saying. Anyway... Yes, the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which, believe it or not, is difficult to find, which is really unfortunate, Cole. But I, first of all, I want to get your perspective on this movie because, as we've already mentioned, you are from Pittsburgh, as is uh, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, my local WQED was the PBS station that he started off on uh, locally back in Pittsburgh. And that's the one that my grandparents would get and that we would get whenever I would go over there. Um, 
so it, I grew up with Mr. Rogers also. It was Mr. Rogers reruns because I'm a little young to have caught it in 1968 <laughs> when it was first airing. But I, he's, he is a local hero and a local treasure back there. Absolutely. So what did you think of the movie? Oh, I loved it. Um, I think I mentioned to you after I saw it, uh, you know, as we, we talk about movies and other than just for an hour on Fridays. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the first time that I've ever seen a documentary in theaters. And I really enjoyed it. I really loved that I went and saw it. Cole, when you said that, I said, oh, well, I know I've seen one in the theaters. Uh, but have you? I can't think of one. I know there's got to be one. I'm going to I'm going to discover one during the show and I'll talk about it later, but nothing comes to mind. This one is worth it though. It it tells his whole story. It does it very well and from a fair perspective. Um I mean it, it it's a documentary. They have you know the normal documentary things where they show old archived footage framed by modern people talking about his life and it's all done just with such a beautiful light perspective. Um, about his show, which was so good. You know, going into this movie, I knew I, – I guess I didn't realize how little I knew about Fred Rogers. Um, he was a minister. He was a musician, obviously. That's not too surprising because there's so much music that goes into his shows. But uh, I didn't know anything about the Senate hearing where Nixon wanted to axe PBS and Fred Rogers had to go and testify and uh, if you haven't seen that, you should YouTube that because it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I didn't know he had a show called Old Friends, New Friends when he ended Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and wanted to make a show for adults uh, before circling back and, and doing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood again. But, uh, yeah, that show did not last very long. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, the crew that he has to work on the show – so everybody has this picture of Mr. Rogers in their mind, right? This really clean-cut, wholesome, kind-hearted, just down-to-earth gentleman, right? So you would picture that maybe he would surround himself with those types of people. Well, it, it, let's just say it might be a little more difficult to find that many Fred Rogers in the entertainment industry. and They just look like the kind of guys you'd get manning microphones and cameras. and Right. <laughs> but the thing is, you could see how much that crew loved him. And they, play, they talk about all the pranks that they played on him. And, and it, what's more surprising is some of the pranks that he played on them. He had a good sense of humor. Uh, I love all of the animated sequences in this film. They they really portray Mr. Rogers for most of the movie as Daniel the Striped Tiger. Uh, they, they talk about a lot of the parallels between Daniel and Mr. Rogers. Another thing that really surprised me as I was watching this, the young Fred Rogers is a dead ringer for Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory. I could not get over that. The whole time I kept thinking, man, if they ever make a movie, a fictionalized version of this, Jim Parsons would be a great choice for Fred Rogers. Did you? Can you see that? I mean, I guess I just see Mr. Rogers. I can't. Okay. I can't see anyone. I grew up. Yeah. I. I mean, I've seen a lot of the old episodes as well of Mr. Rogers' Neighbor. I watched this show a lot when I was a small child. So there's only one Mr. Rogers in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you need to go see it. It is – I've put it as one of the best movies of the year in my opinion. It's the best documentary I've seen in about five years. 
I'll say that. You said you don't see documentaries. In the theater, Jeffrey. Okay. I, I do broaden my horizons from time to time. Well, if only they would show that Pope documentary locally, we could go see that too. That looked good as well. Ugh. What's wrong with these people? Anyway... Uh, the other movie that we wanted to talk about today, it's it's a little movie. Uh, By a little studio. <laughs> well, it's a little movie in more ways than one. Yeah. Let's see how many little <laughs> puns that we can get going during this review. Okay. So it is Ant-Man and the Wasp. And it's going to do huge numbers. Not as big numbers as the other movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that's really kind of sad because the first Ant-Man is one of my top five favorite movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Cole's rolling his eyes at me. But uh, for some reason, movies like Ant-Man and Doctor Strange and your Thor movies, they don't make as much money as the Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America, Iron Man. The better ones. Debatable, Cole. Debatable. Um, But uh, it's interesting because... We'll give you a little a little uh, of the plot. Okay. And it's not like there's much of a plot in the film, I've got to say. But basically, uh, the first 20 to 30 minutes of the movie is all exposition. All exposition. So if you're not familiar with the first movie at all, they are going to spell it out for you very clearly what you missed. Um, I, I think they could have done a better way of – Getting people caught up on what happened in the first movie or well, and what happened in the Avengers and right. what happened in Captain America Civil War. And- but it's like it's they it's 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 as if somebody had a piece of paper and they were reading it. It was it was that lazy, I thought, of a setup. I, anyway. Well, it set up the funny parts of the movie. So the <laughs> um the whole movie is – yeah, the beginning is explaining where Ant-Man was during maybe Avengers and he was on what house he was arrest. doing during Captain America Civil War. But it's done so that the funniest moments of the whole movie can take place right. over the course of the movie. So Paul Rudd, who plays Ant-Man, is on – he's got a few days left of his two-year house arrest sentence. For some reason, he was placed under house arrest for – breaking for- the Sokovia Accords – but, it was all this exposition was there, so you don't have to say for some reason. Okay, but why is he? Why. why is he the only Avenger on house arrest? Because he actually turned himself. So the Captain America side was breaking the Sokovia Accords, but they actually turned themselves in at the end, which meant guys like Ant Man and Hawkeye, that were just guys, ended up kind of having that happen. They were in the big floating jail. And it seems unfair that, that people as charming as Paul Rudd can be placed under house arrest while all these other free wheels are out there just willy-nilly. Anyway. I don't think any of that phraseology made any sense. Anyway, so uh, Paul Rudd helps Michael Douglas and his daughter played by Evangeline Lilly to extract Evangeline Lilly's mother and Michael Douglas's wife from the quantum zone, which, as we know from the first Ant-Man, Paul Rudd spent a very little bit of time at the end of the film. It's kind of this this realm where molecules are not materialized. I, I can't really explain it to you, but it's this area you don't want to be for more than a few seconds at a time. Because you might get trapped like... Right. Michael Douglas's wife did. So 
I, I mentioned the plot. I mentioned the excessive exposition. I don't think it's as funny as the original. Which I very much disagree. To me, this really? is the funniest Marvel movie <gasps> I have seen. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Well, this is coming from the guy that does not like Thor Ragnarok, which I think is the funniest movie. Which in is the very, very Marvel important. So they established Thor as a serious character, and I complain about this every time I get to, but... In a th- in the third movie in his franchise, he just entirely flipped around and became a funny guy just because the movies were failing and they needed to get people butts in seats. Agreed. Ant-Man was established as a funny guy. They cast Paul Rudd. We know that it's kind of the joke of the Marvel Cinematic sure. Universe. Mm-hmm. And so when he gets funnier in the second one, it makes sense for his character. He's already a funny guy that gets to be around these more serious Evangeline Lilly and Michael Douglas and right. Michelle Pfeiffer and everyone. So this one can be funny without me thinking that it's tearing down what they've established in the characters that they have. I think what's gone for me this time around is the surprise. The first movie, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, that looks ridiculous. And then as the uh, release date approached, I started to warm up to the idea of Ant-Man a little more. And I went to see it and I was pleasantly surprised. And their trailer has also told you this is going to kind of be a joke. I remember the oh, one sure. where it's just Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas kind of snapping their fingers and saying, ants, ants. Yeah. Ants. Oh, I don't remember that. For the second movie? For the first. Oh, for the first movie. I'll play it so for you. The, uh, the problem for me with the second movie is that most of the best sight gags, and there are a lot of them in this film – you will see – you will have already seen in the trailer the Pez dispenser, uh, the cars salt getting shaker. bigger and smaller, the salt shakers, the running along the surface of the knife. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that you already see in the trailer. Um, you mentioned Paul Rudd and a lot of his funny lines. He's credited as one of the writers on this movie. He may have been for the first movie as well. I turned to my wife and I said it's probably all of the ad libs – that he put in there, you know, the improvised lines. Uh, It's too bad because, as I mentioned, the original one is one of my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Uh, It did give me some great ideas for playtime with my kids. There are several scenes in here where Paul Rudd has some very imaginative play with his daughter, who's very adorable in this movie, and they have a wonderful relationship. And it really makes you think, I'm willing to bet, just like Mr. Rogers how he is that person in real life, I'm willing to bet Paul Rudd is as charming and kind as he is in the movies that he's in. I love Paul Rudd. And I will mention there are two post credit scenes, uh, one of which you definitely want to stay, stick around for the first one. If you don't, you will be in the dark in the future movies that come out. I will say this. Out of all the post credit scenes that Marvel has offered us, I think – This is really the only one that is crucial that you see or the only one that's worth sticking around for, in my opinion. It was very good, as they all are, Jeffrey. But it's crucial to the plot that you see it. Yeah. It's still a tag on. It's still a post credit scene. But they're all good. You should – after 10 years of this, you should be sticking around through the credits of a Marvel movie. You don't need us to tell you that. Well, anyway, there you have it. Two choices, one of which you're going to have to look a little harder for, which is Mr. Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And the other one is no secret. It's Ant-Man and the Wasp, and it's going to be a huge hit. Right, Cole? Correct. Huge hit for a little hero. Anyway, when we return, Cole, we spent a lot of time here on screen cleaning talking about entertainment that's appropriate for the whole family. 
However, not all family-friendly entertainment is entertaining for everyone in the family, parents in particular. So when we return, we're going to help you find some shows that are meant for kids that are just as enjoyable, if not more so, for adults. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. Ants. Ants. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. You know, it's no secret that here on Screen Cleaning, Cole and I do our darndest to not only shine a big old spotlight and all that is good in entertainment, but we also try to find entertainment that is appropriate for kids, that parents can enjoy with their kids. Today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do a little bit of a switcheroo. We are going to talk about entertainment that is meant for kids, but that is just as entertaining Good for adults. For adults, yeah, right. This, these are the types of shows that adults might even sit down and watch when their kids are not around. <gasps> Imagine that watching kids shows. You might not admit that you would watch all of these alone without your kids, but we will. We will definitely. So we are going to share. We're each going to share five picks of shows that, if they're not obscure to you. They will be lesser known or maybe a little forgotten. So we want to bring them back into the spotlight for you. I'm going to start with my number five, which I, it requires a little bit of uh, context or background, if you will, because when I was in seventh grade, science was not my strong suit. Still isn't to this day. But I would always have fun in my science class whenever my extremely boring and strict science teacher would pull out his videotape of Bill Nye the Science Guy and put it in, and science would all of a sudden become fun and a little more understandable for me. Maybe science even rules. Right. Thank you, Cole. However, he would always skip over the theme song to Bill Nye the Science Guy, which is unforgivable. That's one of the theme songs that you have to listen to and want to every single time it's on. Netflix now gives you that option sometimes, but when it's Bill Nye, you never skip the intro. So basically, science made easy, made fun. Uh, Kids are going to love it. And I thought it was interesting how he came up with this name, Bill Nye the Science Guy. He was in an improv comic troupe back in Seattle, and some other cast member said something science related and Bill Nye corrected him and the cast member uh, improvised the line who do you think you are Bill Nye the science guy and he was born huh why yeah I do I believe he was doing a science character in this troupe already but uh, thank you thank you very much for that little ad lib strange guy that will never get any credit for it right so what is your Number five. Cool. Well, I will keep us on the live action train. And this is actually the only live action entry I have Ooh. for the list because I find that it's very hard to find a show that's driven at kids that's live action. Either it has kid actors, which aren't always the best and most mature in their acting abilities, sure. which is understandable, or it has a bunch of adults that are acting ridiculous and kid like. Right. And so, so every Disney show you ev- just name Every right Disney okay. show. <laughs> but and I will have a Disney show later on that's animated. That's okay. Good. But the one live action show that I can forgive and can understand is one that really is devoted to its ability to be genuine, its genuineness. Okay. Um, the the character and the main character is just so likable and pure 
that, yeah, he's playing to kids, but adults can just appreciate and see, wow, this is a guy and this is a role model I would love to be. It is Pittsburgh's own Mr. Rogers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Thank you, Cole, for mentioning Mr. Rogers. He is just – he is such a beautiful man and and his goal was just to make good – nice children's and family programming and for our show to be supportive of the family programming kind of thing mr rogers definitely gets a place here and at the same time he didn't really shy away from some of the heavier topics oh no but he would explain it in a loving caring way Mm -hmm. yeah and again every time an adult tries to Act goofy for the kids. I think, no, we could be doing this so much better. Look at Mr. Rogers. Well, and basically you're, when you do that, you're talking down to kids. Mm-hmm, which and he never did. Right. He treated them as equals. Amazing. My number four is uh, it's animated kind of, but it's not live action either. Okay. It is claymation. Ooh. And anything from Ardman Studios is going to get my attention. Um if I could have chosen a movie, I would have because I love all of the Wallace and Gromit shorts and uh, Chicken Run. Um, but this is actually a TV show that was later made into a movie from Arden Studios. It's called Shaun the Sheep. What's amazing about this series is that it can be universally appealing because there's no dialogue. So you have all these animals doing funny things, you know, things that humans typically only do. And it is genuinely funny. So you should definitely check out Shaun the Sheep. And you really gain an appreciation for the animators because you can just imagine the painstaking process that they go through to shape these animals in all the different expressions and movements to get these very short animated sequences. The the amount of time that goes into it is just astounding. So that's my number four pick, Shaun the Sheep. Interesting. My number four pick is an older television show from the Hanna-Barbera cartoon days. Because okay. if I'm looking at children's television and I'm looking at cartoons, Hanna-Barbera deserves some kind of shout out for me because it was such an integral part to my childhood. Um, I have chosen the Laugh Olympics. What? I've never heard of this. It had one season and sort of a half of another season. But it came right on the heels of the Battle of the Network Stars that was going on in the late 70s and early 80s. And it was the Battle of the Hanna-Barbera Stars. You had three teams, the Yogi Yahooies, the Scooby Doobies, (laughs) and the Really Rottens, who would always cheat those Really Rottens. Um, And they would go and do these wacky Olympic kind of things as a team, and then one team would win and get the gold medal at the end. And it was just so fun. And for me, I I mean, I love the Marvel movies just like everyone in the world loves the Marvel movies, but I really enjoy seeing universes come together and team-ups for things that you didn't normally... Sure. yeah. That we didn't used to be able to expect out of movies. Now every movie does it. But... Wouldn't it be great if we had Planet of the Apes meets Jurassic Park? That... And have, instead of the apes riding horses, they could ride dinosaurs. <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be I would pay for that. So, yeah, before before there was a Marvel universe and before all these universes collided, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon universe collided. And everyone mm-hmm. competed against each other in, a, in an Olympics setting in the Laugh Olympics, yeah. commentated by none other than Snagglepuss. Oh, of course. <laughs> and you dug deep for that. Thank you for doing that. 
Um, mine is not that obscure, but I don't really hear too many people talking about it, which is a shame because it's not a bad show. And uh, I've watched a couple episodes of it, and I I will probably go back and finish it. But it's called Lemony Snickets, A Series of Unfortunate Events. And as you mentioned, Cole, it is difficult to find a live-action kids show that adults will enjoy. And this show does it quite well. The production value is quite good. The supporting players are quite good. It's definitely tamer than the movie, meaning that I wouldn't say it's as scary for kids or as threatening um, or dark as the movie is. Ominous. Right. Uh, All those things describe Jim Carrey. But I much prefer the movie, actually, with Jim Carrey. Because the Count Olaf character, who in this instance is played by Neil Patrick Harris of How I Met Your Mother fame and Doogie Howser fame, that's kind of obscure. But um, And he doesn't quite have the Count Olafness that I like in Jim Carrey, meaning that Count Olaf is somebody who professes to be this wonderful actor, but he's really not a good actor. And Jim Carrey plays him as somebody who's not only not a good actor, but an over-actor, which he is wont to do from time to time. It kind of fit perfectly. It fit perfectly, and the different characters that he got to play were all hilarious. If you ever want—I know I'm getting off topic here, but if you ever want some good laughs, watch the special features on the movie for Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, and you just get to see Jim Carrey improvise in these different characters, and it's hilarious. But do check out Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events on Netflix. So you got to talk about, um, kind of got mired in the reboot there, where there's two different characters playing the same guy. Sure. I now get to talk about my favorite iteration of a character that has had at least five different movie versions of him. Okay. I think the TV one is the best, and I am talking about none other than the Caped Crusader. Batman. Whoa. Kevin Conroy's voice in Batman the Animated Series and then the subsequent Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, which I've gushed about before on this show as well, is my definitive Batman. No matter what Michael Keaton or Val Kilmer or George Clooney or even Adam West or now Ben Affleck or futurely whoever else they get after Affleck. Sure. It is Kevin Conroy's voice that truly can switch between Bruce Wayne and the scary Batman. So... Let me ask you this. Is Mark Hamill the definitive Joker for you then? See, I I do love – oh, and I guess I omitted Christian Bale, right? But I I love Heath Ledger. I love The Dark Knight <laughs> just a little bit too much. But uh, Mark Hamill's right there. It's very close. It's interesting that you mentioned Kevin Conroy's voice because he does a great job of just like nice, calm Bruce Wayne voice. Yeah. And then he gravels it up a little bit for Batman without the use of computers. And without – Going over the top. A lot of people started making fun of Christian Bale's Batman voice. Kevin Conroy did a Batman voice, but it wasn't ridiculous enough to make fun of. It made you scared because that's what he's doing to these criminals. He's putting the fear of the bat into them with his voice without being... But not to say anything against Christian Bale because I love Christian Bale in the role. Shame on you. Um, Okay. Batman the Animated Series, number three on my list. It's a good pick. It's a good, solid pick. Uh, My number two is a little show called Gravity Falls. And this is a show about two siblings who go to spend the summer with their great uncle, 
Stan. They call him Grunkle Stan. And this guy is just kind of a sleazeball who has this tourist trap in this really enigmatic town called Gravity Falls. And Gravity Falls is almost like if you could have a kid's version of Twin Peaks, you might have something like Gravity Falls. Okay. Now, it's not as out there as Twin Peaks, not by a long shot, but it's certainly weird Mm -hmm. and very, very funny. The best, the greatest decision the creators of this show made was casting Kristen Schaal as Mabel Pines, sister to Dipper Pines, who really shows why animators continue to go back to her time and time again. She could have a solid career just as it is in voiceover, and yet we see her on camera time and time again, including in one of my favorite shows that was just recently canceled, The Last Man on Earth. Um, the other thing about this show is that you you feel like they are writing for adults. You don't feel like they're writing for kids. And there's a lot of in there's a lot in the show that makes you feel nostalgic, but they never reference something specifically. What I mean by that is there is an entire episode dedicated to a character from a fighting game coming off the screen and helping Dipper Pines face off against this bully. Right. And it's definitely a ripoff or a tip of the Homage. hat yeah, to Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. But they never mention anything specifically, and I love the the parodies in this TV series. It is. I can appreciate that because it is really easy to say, hey, guys, remember that old movie, The Empire Strikes Back, when right. Spider-Man does his thing and Which Civil is a War. bit of a crutch because you know you're going to rope in a, a portion of your audience with that nostalgia. Exactly. But you, this show does well because you can feel nostalgic without yeah. taking the easy way out. Yeah. That's cool. Parody done well. There you go. Gravity Falls. All right. So I'm going to stay with animation with my number two pick now. And this is Disney's Phineas and Ferb. I've never seen it. This is a fantastic show, and I am positive that this show is fine for adults because a lot of these other ones that I've mentioned, I grew up with, right? Mr. Rogers, I will always see through my kid looking up to him glasses. Uh, Same with Batman. The first time as a small child, I got to see him on my television. I thought, this is Batman, of course. But Phineas and Ferb is different. I was 18 years old, graduated from high school before I gave this show a chance because I was too old for cartoons by that point. When you're a high schooler, you get too cool for a lot of things. But With I, the exception of maybe The Simpsons. Yes. But, but that's still more watch. adult animation. Like, I, I, I should clarify. I don't watch the new episodes. I go back and watch the old ones. Right. But with this list, we're trying to hit shows that were for kids. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's something I want to talk about with, with a couple of years as well. You've found these TV shows that aren't ridiculous in a way – when you said they were written for adults, there are a lot of animations on Cartoon Network and, and these other kind of programs. But aren't appropriate for kids. aren't appropriate for kids. Right. These are shows today that we're talking about that are kids' shows. And Phineas and Ferb is clearly a show for kids yeah. that is written so adults can enjoy it. It's a show that's extremely – and perfectly formulaic the (laughs) every single show starts off with phineas saying i know what we're going to do today like when he gets an idea and then they do a big thing and their older sister candace is trying to bust them for doing something that they weren't supposed to do to their parents and they have a platypus named perry and he's actually a secret agent and he goes off to defeat the evil dr doofenshmirtz from 
taken over the tri-state area. And eventually something that Perry and Doofenshmirtz are doing will come back and cause whatever Phineas and Ferb were doing to go away right before Candace can bust them to their parents. And that's every episode. So kids can <laughs> get a good feel for what's going to happen. They can have an expectation and, and can kind of learn the basics of even narrative structure from a young age. Wow. While parents can just enjoy this is how they did the twist this time. Well, what I like about your description of that show is that it kind of is similar to your what I know is going to be, going to be your number one pick in that uh, Phineas starts every show with saying – I know what I want to do today, but I don't want to give it away too much. I'll let you do that here in just a minute. Before I get to my number one pick, I want—I have to mention an honorable mention that would have been on this list had it been a little more accessible. And I'm talking about The Adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon, one of my favorite shows growing up. And really, there are a lot of jokes and gags in that show that, again, are written for adults. Not that they're not appropriate for kids, but you have this... You have these two brothers that are both named Pete, and the younger one has a, a giant tattoo on his arm that he gets to move and contort whenever he does all sorts of movements with his arm. And just a funny, bizarre show that I wish I could have put on this list, but the only way you can get it is if you hop on eBay or Amazon and, and spend a good amount of money to buy it on DVD. And so, it's maybe not that good. <laughs> oh, come on now, Cole. It I, probably is not as good as I remember it, but it is very entertaining and, and just fun, weird, yeah, entertainment. Cool. I have an honorable mention as well. Okay. Uh, it is very accessible because it's on Netflix and it is called Beat Bugs. Beat Bugs. Now, this is a show that's, if anything, directed at toddlers. I'm, I'm kind of reaching very much into the kids' bag here. These are just a couple animated bugs that go about and, and have very basic, very preschool animated adventures. But the twist here is that every show is kind of determined by a Beatles song. And really? so they do they get these real artists to cover a song from the Beatles and that's kind of the driving force and so right before the episode's going to end when you think that the hero's kind of down on their luck and then right before something good happens um a Beatles song plays and it's kind of fun for adults to see how they incorporate that each time the title of every episode is whatever the title of that Beatles song is going to be I'll have to check that out It's very interesting good. All right Cole I think we're finally down to our last pick for kids' TV shows that are really entertaining for adults. And I thought we could just do a really quick recap of the shows we've already mentioned. My four picks so far and my honorable mention were Bill Nye the Science Guy, Sean the Sheep, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events on Netflix, Gravity Falls, and my honorable mention, which you can really only get on DVD, so you have to hop on Amazon or eBay to get it, is The Adventures of Pete and Pete from Nickelodeon. And by way of recap for mine, I talked about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Hanna-Barbera's Laugh Olympics, Phineas and Ferb, and Batman, the animated series, with Beat Bugs from Netflix being my honorable mention. Well, my number one pick for kids' TV shows for adults would be a little show that I was not familiar with, never had, had never had I ever heard of it before until I did some digging around on the internet, and it was a Cartoon Network show, and uh, only lasted a few seasons, but I think was, was really highly received, at least by critics, called The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. 
If you're not familiar with this show, it's and basically... And I wasn't either until you made me very familiar with it this week. And now you have thanked me because this is a fantastic show. Absolutely. It's it's basically a less adult version of Ren, Ren and Stimpy, which was always one of my favorite shows growing up. But it is – Ren and Stimpy was always a little creepy, was very out there. This show is very out there, but the animation is so unique and it's very beautiful. So here's basically the premise of The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. The comical seafaring adventures of a young enthusiastic boy, his pirate captain mentor, and the talking whale that raised him from birth. This is a description from IMDb. Uh, the voice cast is excellent. As the uh, pirate captain mentor, you've got Brian Doyle Murray. And if that last name sounds familiar, it's because he is the older brother of Bill Murray. That one I've heard of. Right. And he comes – I mean Bill Murray comes from a whole family of actors and writers. And uh, it's it's filled with moments that are so laugh-out-loud funny that you will be crying because you'll be laughing so hard. If you had to sum up the show's premise, because the premise I just gave you is pretty general, it's basically these two characters, this little boy and this really weird-looking pirate captain, uh, trying to find the mystical candy island where they can just go and eat candy to their heart's content. And it's so it's so funny to hear Brian Doyle Murray's voice, which is very kind of ravelly. If you don't know, here here's a uh, where you might know him from. Brian Doyle Murray plays the mayor in the film Groundhog Day. The oh. seer of seers, prognosticator of prognosticators. Just that really gruff voice, okay? Juxtaposed with this little boy who is Flapjack who has like this really high-pitched, innocent foot. Wow, if you actually go and watch the show, that kind of sounded like it. This Jeff is very spot-on impersonations today on the really show. Really innocent voice trying to find Candy Island. Anyway, check it out. You will cry from laughing. And uh, it's called The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. You can find it on Hulu. You can find it on YouTube TV. You may even be able to find it on Cartoon Network in their archives. But that's my number one pick, Cole. And it is a worthy pick. And, again, one of those shows that we know is good for adults because neither of us watched it until we were adults. Right. And we approve. <laughs> my pick is a show that I watched when I was a child. I took a long break and then I came back to it as an adult. I've enjoyed it equal amounts both times and not just for the nostalgia factor. And that is The Animaniacs. Ah, yes. As you alluded to earlier on in our discussion, it has many different segments, one of them being Pinky and the Brain, where they find out what they're going to do today. And of course, the answer is try to take over the world. <laughs> I'm not quite the voiceover talent that you are, Jeffrey, but this show does have one of the great voices in cartoons, Rob Paulson. Not the brain, but Pinky, and then also Wacko Warner. He shows up in Jimmy Neutron, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Tick, so many different cartoons over the years. And now, in his spare time, he does this kind of interview show called Talking Tunes, where he sits down with other voiceover guys, and they read a script in the voices that they did in cartoons. It's so cool. 
And speaking of impersonations, the character of Brain is basically an impersonation of Orson Welles. Oh yes, and they do one of the weirdest episodes is where they do an entire episode where Brain is voicing some old Orson Welles B-roll, like some some of his outtakes <laughs> that didn't make it in there. And as a kid, you watch it, and it's a funny episode. But then when you realize what the premise was behind it and everything that they're doing, it's hilarious because yeah. he's just reading these old tapes of Orson Welles. That's interesting. I did not think I saw that one. Oh, there are some amazing, just weird, off-the-wall episodes of this show. But even the normal ones are very based in Looney Tunes, I guess. I mean, it's Warner Brothers as well. And they just have these different characters that exist in their different worlds. Uh, the Good Feathers are the pigeons in New York that kind of are uh, riffing on the good fellas. <laughs> There's, of course, the main characters of the Warner Brothers and the Warner Sister and all of their wacky adventures, Pinky and the Brain, Slappy Squirrel, Buttons and Mindy. So many different characters, kind of like how Looney Tunes brought in, you know, Sylvester and Tweety and Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And they did that for a new generation. And it was my generation. And it's still so good. It's a solid pick, Cole. Do you feel like it's it's uh, has it aged well? Absolutely, and that's my favorite part about it because I I remember loving the songs and some of just the goofy antics that were in it when I was a little kid. But it is such a smartly written show. In their they do satire just excellently, and a lot of things that they were satiring when I was seven or eight years old, I didn't know. I wasn't familiar with it all, and now I go back. And can laugh until I cry. Now you're old enough to appreciate it. I am. Well, it must have aged well enough, or at least there there must be some nostalgia, uh, because there has been an announcement made that in 2020, they are rebooting the series for Hulu. Correct. Steven Spielberg is back. All of the voice actors are back. How do you feel about that, Cole? Uh, I will check it out. Okay. I know that later on, you and I are going to do a show about reboots and whether or not that is a good idea. And and even revisiting some old ideas right. and how it's never a good idea. Yeah. And the line from Jurassic Park comes to mind from Jeff Goldblum. They were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. I got to go Which could also that movie. apply to his own franchise now as well. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. The top 10 kids' TV shows that are great for adults. And you really need to check them out. I know that I'm going to go back and finish watching The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. And I'm not even going to watch it with my kids. How about that? Anyway, stay tuned. When we return, we're going to continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson, and uh, I'm about to speak with two of our favorite friends here on the show, and they're going to tell us what's coming up on their program here in just about 10 minutes. I, of course, am speaking of our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. We've got Jerem and Jason today. How are you guys doing? Hi, Jeff. Hello there. Three J's. Three J's. Mm -hmm. Triple J's. J-Cube. The best three friends anyone could best ever have. Best two years. Three and yet you friends. guys have never gone to the movies with me. Yeah, why haven't we? Why haven't you invited us? That's what, what we've been what, talking what about the all heck? the time. <laughs> like, why doesn't Jeff ask us to go to the theater with him like to see when, a show? Uh, a la cinema. Uh, uh, 
That's what my mom would say. Oh. I just said what like, in uh, Russian. Do you want to go to the cinema? I was like, Mom, it's called the theater in the United States. <laughs> Is your We're mom Mexico American? My mom's uh, Mexican Caucasian. Really? Yeah. She Amer- she Americanized. Really? Took the test. You learned really something new like every day about yeah, Jerem. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think Jason's just a little sore because I saw him in the break room yesterday and I didn't I don't feel like I was bragging, but I did mention the fact that I was going to see Ant Man and the Wasp. Yes. When I you, when are you gonna see it, Jason? Uh, I'm hoping to see it next week. Probably in like an hour. <laughs> no. <laughs> right after the show. In an hour, I'm going to be in a car on my way down to hundred degree heat in uh hundred and ten degree heat in St. George. By Whoa. choice. Yes. You know, uh I think uh it's it's a big film mm-hmm. and it's it's going or to is make it a small film. Ooh. <laughs> and uh I think I think by the end you're going to be a little surprised. Oh, good surprise? Yeah. Don't. Just just for a Don't. tiny, tiny bit. Okay, okay. I, I see what you I see. I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just say there's no uh shortage of surprises. Okay, That's I like good. it. I like that. That's good. It's exciting. <laughs> is yeah, it go- I'm going to see it Monday. I have tickets for Monday. Is it going to be? Is it going to continue the streak of Marvel films dominating, like just making, like literally printing money? Cole is convinced it's not going to do that well. Isn't that illegal? He he is thinking that since it's so uh, close to the release of Avengers: Infinity War, that mm-hmm. it's he didn't say. Well, no, he did say bomb in Marvel. You know, in Marvel's eyes, it'll bomb because. There, Infinity War is still in the theaters, mm-hmm. and so there's not enough time in between movies to create buzz. And Ant Man is kind of one of the buzz, lesser. I see what you did there. The, the interesting thing. I though, didn't even realize I did that. Thank you for pointing <laughs> that out. The, the interesting thing for me is I don't think that's an issue with the Marvel movies. At least it hasn't been to this point. It's becoming an issue with the Star Wars movies. Oh yeah. Yep, so much so that they're thinking of taking a step back yeah, from those exactly. prequels and spin-offs. But I, I, th- I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like people universally are just are have bought in and they're along for the ride. Well, they've there's more there. The story yeah. arc is yeah. way wider. Yeah. You know. And who doesn't love them some Paul Rudd? Yeah, Paul if Paul, Paul Rudd great. can be a superhero, anyone can do it. If you can, like he's just like the everyman, the funny guy. If right? you can go from um clueless <laughs> to being a superhero. Hey, that, Alicia Silverstone did it. That's called range. Alicia yeah, Silverstone yes, did, did Batman, it. Right? Batman. Forever. That's right. That's right. She was with, uh, uh, which Batman was that? Was that Clooney? Forever. Yep. Right? No, it was one, Batman right? and Robin. Yes. And she nearly derailed the franchise. I don't think it was her. I think it was a lot of other things. Yeah, it was the costumes. We won't say which part of the costumes <laughs> yes, exactly. ruined it. But uh, thank goodness for Christopher Nolan. Anyway, and yes. thank thank goodness for BYU Sports Nation, which is going to be coming up here in about six and a half minutes. What should we be looking forward to today? There's a lot of discussion about the quarterback. We will discuss the cornerbacks. Who mm. will start there? Because BYU's two starters last year look like they're going to play a different position. It's safety. So who will play cornerback for the Cougars this season? We'll tell you. Also, uh, I think we all know of someone who who – Basically has everything like there's you know Spencer just, is that good. they have everything and then they add to it yeah. and you're like really do yeah. they need that they mm-hmm. already have everything 
That's kind of like Gonzaga basketball, and they just got a really good grad transfer. We're going to talk a little bit about that and what it means for BYU. Hmm. Plus, Tiger and Phil are going to play off one-on-one for $10 million bucks. Uh, so what's your dream BYU one-on-one matchup? Ooh. Yes. Plus, we have some events going on during the show. Uh, Cougars in the PGA on the course, plus USA Volleyball, a couple Cougars playing in France for Team USA. We'll update you throughout the program on how they're doing. And real quick before you guys go, I know this is kind of off the subject, but it's sports-related. I want to know the one person you want to see in the All-Star game that's coming up. In baseball? In baseball, yeah. Yes. I want to see the entire Mariners team. (laughs) I do want to see Edwin Diaz. Uh, as the closer in the All-Star game because he has 34 saves. I want to awesome. I want to see a home run derby between Bryce Harper and Mike Trout and Ichiro. Ichiro is too old. <laughs> but you know, Bryce Harper will only be in the home run derby if he is selected as an All-Star. He probably doesn't deserve gonna, to be an All-Star. Well, <laughs> this season, right? He's but not played that there, well. There's, there's no chance that he's not going to be. Right. It's in Washington. That's well, yeah, what I want to see. He's is just it? a popular guy, too. And he's yeah. shaved now, so... But he hates BYU. He does hate BYU. <laughs> he said that out loud. Yes. Well, in a few minutes, you are going to give us some news about uh, very pro-BYU things. Yes. And we wish you luck and have a great show. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Well, as you know, we like to end each show here on Screen Cleaning with our Panning for Good segment. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> that theme song gets Cole every time. It puts a big old smile on his face and it, it gets a chuckle out of him. And if I've done that, I know I've done my job on the show. Cole, care to comment? <laughs> It's. It might be my favorite part of every show, just hearing that that prospector give his old laugh. Yeah. Gosh, I wish he was still around. Uh, he. Uh, we had to let him go, though. Anyway, um, we are going to revisit something we've already talked about on the show today, and that is the film "Won't You Be My Neighbor." Now. Really, we want to talk a little bit more about Won't You Be My Neighbor and really just documentaries in general. Cole brought up a good point. How many documentaries do we see in the movie theaters? He hadn't seen one before this. And I finally thought of one, Cole, that I've seen in the movie theaters. It came back before I started having children and it just made me baby crazy. And it was a documentary simply called Babies. And it, it shows these three or four babies that... Uh, are from all over the world and them kind of growing up. And it, what was really great about that film is that child rearing is really a universal thing and we're all kind of the same when you get right back down to it. But one thing I want to mention about Won't You Be My Neighbor and documentaries in general is that they are really something that you should check out. Some of these filmmakers are, are making them to inform you, to entertain you, Maybe to sway your opinion one way or another. And in the case of Won't You Be My Neighbor, I left the theater wanting to be a better person. And really, that's those are the types of films that we try to talk about here on Screen Cleaning. The ones that try to make a difference in the world. And many of you may be skeptical about documentaries or a documentary about Fred Rogers. You may be like the judge, the hard-nosed judge in the Senate hearing. But I guarantee you, by the end of this film... Just like the judge at the end of the Senate hearing, you will be won over by the charm and goodness that is Fred Rogers, and your heart will be softened, 
and you will want to be part of that force for good in this world. Anyway, that's our panning for goodment, our panning for good segment on the show, and that's going to be the show for today. We'll be back next week. This is Screen Cleaning. 